Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to this is the final word on core edition. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. I'm still sitting here in my cricket whites after our live Zoom show with Damien Fleming. I haven't yet uh, got changed. Uh, mm. Jeff, you've, you've taken the opportunity since we finished that to chuck on a pair of civvies, but um, that was quite good fun, wasn't it? It, it was. I, it wasn't surprising that it was. So we had a whole stack of people all come in and join us on a Thursday night. Particularly nice touch at the end, getting to take everyone's mute off and, and get a round of applause for Damien Fleming from <laughs> all corners of the world. I, I don't know exactly where everybody was listening in from, but uh, yeah, we, we enjoyed ourselves. Yeah, it felt really good. And thanks again to Damien Fleming for being an absolutely outstanding guest. He spent a couple of hours talking to us. If you're one of our patrons, you can, of course, access that interview on the patron page. We'll stick it up shortly, the video version of that. And if you're not, you can uh, become a patron and see the post. Uh, Jeff, the reason we're recording again is to keep with the the pattern of the last few weeks. We're re-releasing an an interview that we've done in the past. In this case, Ian Chappell. We went to Chapelli's house in, in Sydney. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it felt like a long way north of, of Sydney <laughs> CBD. We, we got a bus out there. It took a while to arrive after scampering through from Canberra, wasn't it? We, we, I had a flight to catch the next day back to England and we had one day spare. We're like, right, we'll get to Sydney. Well, that's right. We went in the back of Ben Horn's car, didn't we? With a, yep. with a TV and suitcases yep. and all the rest in the back with us and, and Peter Lawler in the front seat. And, and we finally got to Chapelli and it was worthwhile. It was. When you say it felt like a long way from Sydney, that's because it's a fucking long way from Sydney. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all the way up the coast. I, I don't know if you could even really call it in Sydney anymore. Um, by the time you get up there, a couple of hours on the bus up there after a, a few hours in the car on the way up, being crushed to death by all of your luggage. So by the time we got there, I, I think we were fairly frazzled and um, but somehow we managed to get our heads together and just as well we did because we had Ian Chapel for nearly an hour and a half just uh, walk us through one of the most fascinating and, and satisfying interviews that I've done. There's, there's never an interviewee, an, an interviewee who you can be more sure will give you a straight answer when you ask a question than Ian Chappell. He, whatever he says about anyone is exactly what he would say to their faces. Uh, whatever he would say about any situation is exactly what he would say in any room at any time. He does not uh, shrink away from a straight answer. And yeah, it was a, a pleasure to be able to sit down with him. Yeah, that's well summed up. I think from from memory, it wasn't just, well, I know we didn't just talk about cricket, did we? We got into a range of other topics that Ian feels strongly and passionately about. So uh, stick around for that interview uh, when we come to the back of this. We won't talk very long now for that matter, actually. We'll just get through a little bit of our favourite part of the show, of course, Jeff, which, of course, it means it's time for... Nerd Pledge! It would not be a final (laughs) word show if we didn't do a little bit of Nerd Pledge, which is the game of nerds and pledges that people play with us on the page. Patron page where they send us. So when they sign up, instead of saying 
$2, they say $2.48, and then we have to work out what does two forty-eight mean in a cricketing context. And some of them we know and some of them we go and look up and we, we've had quite a few fun little dives uh, over the last few days with people sending mm. increasingly difficult ones and giving us hints in various directions. Um, but sometimes you see a number that comes around and it just looks like an old friend. Sometimes it's a number <laughs> that, that has been there with you uh, through maybe childhood, maybe teenage years where, where you're, you're looking at a number and thinking, hmm, this looks very familiar. <laughs> now, this number has come up from a couple of people. Right. Uh, it's come up from Tom Stewart, who I can only hope is the Geelong Cats defender, Tom Stewart, who's a, a fine footballer. But it's also come up from Faraz Khan. And the number... Adam, which I haven't told you what it is, I haven't warned you no. ahead of time because I'm sure you're going to know, oh, and and I know that I'm, I know that this puts you on the spot and then means you forget it. But if you don't know it, I know it. Okay, so we're okay. At least one of us knows it. Let's do it. The number you you would have seen this on a lot of TV screens during mm-hmm. the 1990s. The number is 194. 194. Well, it's going to be someone's test wicket tally, or it's going to be someone having made 194 in a game of international cricket, which rules out one-day cricket in that generation anyway. Um, does it, though? Does it, though? Does it rule that one day? Oh, Saeed Amwa made does, 194, does didn't he? That's... Didn't he just? And that's why it kept coming up, because it was always the highest score in one-day cricket for until, a very long time, until Sachin got the double in 2010, wasn't it? No, you're spot on. It, it was. And, and again, it kind of links in nicely to um, what Flem was telling us about in, in the in the Zoom show, that he, he rates Said Amwar as one of the best players he ever bowled against. He said it's his the fourth toughest batsman to bowl too. So, and he mm. picked him up in the World Cup final of 1999. So I like that. I think Tom Stewart might be Tommy Stewart from the BBC possibly as well, who runs the um, the production on the Tailenders uh, podcast with our mate Felix White. So oh, yeah. that, that could be him. But I'm grateful that that number has, has, has come through because I did know it. It just took me a while to get there. Yeah. Well, the, the reason that I like it is that it always used to come up on the TV when someone was going well, someone's on 130 or 140, they'd always put up what's the highest score in ODI cricket. Mm. And it was always... Side Anway 194 because it's what is it mid mid to second half of the 90s 96 or 97 when he makes that score yep and so every time after that through the 2000s you're always saying oh could he get to the side Anway 194 <laughs> and they never did no one ever Shane Watson got to 185 and fell short and the closest anyone ever got was the Zimbabwean batsman Charles Coventry who drew it he tied he also made 194 in the mid-2000s sometime against Bangladesh when he had a, a six-hitting spree in Harare one day. So, But no one got past the 194 until uh, until Tendulkar did it. Yeah, there were players that should have done so. Uh, Gary Kirsten jumps out at the 96 World Cup against the UAE. I think he made 187. I think that actually might be before Saeed Amwa's 194. It might have been the world record for a year or, or whatever. But in that mm. in that time when 200 was sitting there um, ready to be taken. And of course, Rohit Sharma's done it a, a couple of times, three times possibly. Rohit's made double hundreds in, in, three uh, times. in ODI cricket now. So that's Triple it. hundreds. What did I say? 
I think he said that he's made triple hundreds. Oh, no, 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 no. He's made, well, someone will, someone will one day. I, I, I know our, our statistician friend, Andy Zaltzman's uh, yeah. uh, big on this, that someone will at some point uh, get to 300 in a, in a one day. So uh, watch this space. But say, you know, for a long time was the world record. So thank you. That's a very nice place for us to start. What's next, Jeff? Yes. Well, well what I will say additionally on that is that Rohit Sharma did get 264 and I'm pretty sure had overs to spare. So could have yeah, got the yeah. triple that day. So I'm, I'm definitely, I'm confident that Farah Khan by the name would be a Sayed Anwar fan uh, yeah, yeah. and as for Tom Stewart you know may or may, or may not be but um, I think Marcus Triscothic made a 194 as well so that that might have been in the mix as well if Tom Stewart's a BBC type yeah and Triscothic's batting right now in the replay of the Edge Baston 2005 test match on the radio I turned it off a minute ago it's the, the the first day of that going way back when when Australia elected the bowl first and Triscothic blasted 90 in a session or whatever it was when McGrath wasn't playing so a few nice links there now, Nick O'Connell came in next with $3.60. 360. 360 is the number of degrees in a circle and is often brought up in cricket in terms of someone like A.B. de Villiers being a 360-degree player. Um, so it does mess <laughs> with that it, as a possibility. It, it, yeah, it does mess with my usual search terms when trying to get to the bottom of some of these. You put cricket and 360, not that I'm that crude, but that's what you get. You get There's a website called Cricket 360. There's a... Um, there's a uh, obviously a TV show called Cricket 360 as well. Isn't, so. isn't it three six, Cricket 365? Oh, sorry, maybe it is. I thought it was. I always thought it was. <laughs> and, and I've written for them. Fuck. Um, so. Oh, no, there's a TV show. There's a cable TV show called Cricket no, 360. No, yeah, there's definitely. As in 360 degrees. Yeah, but right? I, the point I'm making is that that is something that you don't get much help from... Uh, from uh, social media, so or from Google rather. But um, where I did land though uh, was with uh, Michael Heaven, made in heaven. His test cap was three sixty, and you know he didn't have the most illustrious test career. But again, just back to no, what but we're... he belongs to. There's an amazing slab from about three fifty to three seventy. If you're sort of of our generation, mm. where the, those those real stars of that that generation, because you start with. Mark Wars three forty nine, Warney's three fifty, and then through the three sixties, you know, Ponting comes in there, and mm, Glenn McGrath, mm. and Langer, and Kasprovich, and and Gillespie's up around three seventy, I think. So, uh, in in that era, you've got Bevan at three sixty and Fleming at three sixty one. There, there are a couple of those names. Yeah, that, I was going to say they were they were consecutive debuts. So Bevan's was in Karachi, that that famous Test match where Australia lost by a wicket after the the four buys incident, and then. Uh, Fleming, of course, uh, debuted at Royal Pindy and took a hat-trick uh, the following week. But great series, fantastic series. As I mentioned uh, on the Zoom chat, the last series that wasn't televised back to Australia. So I know our um, friend and colleague Dan Breddigs talked about writing a, a long-form piece on that and just all the different bits and pieces uh, of the series that, that didn't go to wear over here. But it was when Michael Bevan debuted. He made 70-odd, I think, in his first test inning. So he wasn't too far away from being one of the – well, it would be a list of 21 had he got there. But there's 20 Australian men who've made 100 at the first time of asking mm. so uh, and the other 360 I had Jeff was that that's what Australia set India in the World Cup final of 2003 of course India yeah. came nowhere near it they, they fell 125 runs short but Australia via Ponting and Martin finished on 359 for two I like that. I reckon that's the sort of number someone would set as a nerd pledge. I've, I've mm. just got a vibe from Nick O'Connell on the spreadsheet that he's he's gone, yeah, 360 is that World Cup 2003 <laughs> final score. So I'm happy to go with that. There was another thing I neglected to mention about the 194. So is it poor old 
uh, Kusal Mendes, the, the wonderful Sri Lankan mm. stroke player who, who made that amazing 100 in Gaul when Australia last toured there. He made 176 and he sort of thought at the time, oh, he's, he's um, close to a double and didn't quite get there. Well, then he went on a, a couple of years later to make 194 and then get dismissed and then less than a year after that he made 196 and got dismissed. So <laughs> spare a thought for Kusal Mendes. He can play. Uh Thank you, Nick O'Connell. Thanks, and Nick. Let's go. The last one on our list for today, Alex Crampton with 3.30, not 3.60, but 3.30. I, I immediately knew what this was uh, without checking because mm. for some reason it was just seared in my brain because uh, yesterday I was looking through some old World Cup stuff and it, it's one of my favourite memories of 2019 at the cricket and there were a lot of them. Uh, it was the opening weekend of the World Cup. Uh, Bangladesh, South Africa, where the Bangladeshis made mm. 330 for six. And the reason I remember it was because it was their highest score in, in 50 over cricket uh, ever to that point. I think they might have made a higher score than that later in the tournament. But at that stage, 330 was their, was their top score and they restricted South Africa to 309. So they won fairly comfortably in the end uh, with Shakib, uh, Mamadula, Mushfika, all in the runs. Uh, in Sort of the engine room mm. of the Bangladesh team all coming together and making a contribution at the same time. It, it wasn't like a massive upset uh, when you look at the way Bangladesh were trending but it felt like an upset at the time and one the tournament needed but for, for my part I actually wasn't working at the game that day I went down there to watch and sit with the, the Bangladeshi fans uh, with all their stuffed tigers and, and all the rest of it which became a pretty big part uh, of the travelling support mm. through the tournament but it was just bloody wonderful and had a great time as a spectator and then obviously we, we were recording the podcast later that night and we got right on the Bangladesh bandwagon uh, then as we continued to be on them <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be forever. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that, that was a nice, real nice memory from the World Cup. So that, that's my pick for 3.30. Yeah, I'm very happy to go with that as a final word adjacent yeah. number to say that that's where Tiger Time really began. Um, and, and that's where we, we got the final word listenership right behind the Bangladesh campaign. So Alex Crampton, that's our nomination. Let us know if we've got it right. If we've got it wrong, drop us a message uh, because you're already signed up. If anybody else wants to send us a nerd pledge for us to do, on a future show just go to patreon.com slash the final word and uh, sign yourself up pop your number in you can set your monthly max you can call it off anytime you like so it's a low commitment strategy and thanks again to everyone who signed up around the zoom show and, and all the rest of it if you are new to being one of our patrons hopefully you stick around because we are enjoying sort of corresponding with, with people through the direct message service there and putting up extra bits of content and all the rest of it so thanks for being part of it I should also flag that on the next weekly app next week we do have a big interview coming up with an Australian cricketer Megan Shoot, Australia's opening bowler is going to be joining the final words so keep your eye on your feed for that and of course stick around now for Ian Chappell our rebooted encore edition of the final word Jeff will We'll leave it there. We'll, we'll pass over to Ian and us from about, what was it, 18, 19 months ago, something like that, in the northern suburbs of Sydney. This is The Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lennon. Jeff, before we cut to Ciappelli, uh, we have an old friend who've rejoined The Final Word with us this week. It's our pals at Future Talent, uh, the sports card company. They've, uh, they're based in Melbourne. A couple of fanatics, Heath Evans and Emmanuel DeGeorge, friends of mine. Uh, they've been running their company for 10 years, and you would have heard a lot from us about them uh, through the Australian summer. And, Jeff, uh, in this time when we're all locked down and, and thinking about local sport returning, of course, there'll be not just games but presentation nights as well, and it might not be a bad time to do a bit of 
forward planning and, and consider um, changing up your strategy, as we said at the time uh, earlier in the year. Participation trophies are junk. Instead, go and get yourself a bespoke sports card. They're lots of fun. Yeah, well, look, this could work if you are involved in a club or it could work if you just got kids involved in sport or if you've got yourself involved in sport, whatever it might want to be. If you'd like to see yourself, your friends, your family members on their own sports card where they can have their stats on the back, their bios, uh, the best picture you've got of them or the worst picture you've got of them going around, whatever you want to do <laughs> to and with those <laughs> near to you, um, you can put that together. You've got a lot of time to think about it in lockdown. You can go through all the thousands of old photos that you've never sifted through off your phone when you've dumped them off so that the thing will start working again. Uh, you can select the best shot. You can write up some nice copy. You can get it all looking schmick and you can send it off to Heath at Future Talent because uh, he owns and runs the company, uh, does it all himself basically with a manual down there. They're, they're very kind, nice people who will look after you. You can tell them what you want. They'll personalise the service. They'll do the cards for you and they'll send them out at uh, about a dollar a card so you, you can't really miss. Yeah, I think that's the, the key point here, Jeff. Uh, they're made with love. Uh, they're, they're, they're made uh, individually. Uh, they're custom made uh, by people who really care about what they're doing. So they are a fantastic alternative uh, to the traditional trophies, as I mentioned before. There's going to be a final word collection coming out later this year. There's the Jeff and my cards, which they made last year, which look fantastic. We had those at the live shows. But um, in the short term, I strongly recommend you take a look. Futuretalent.com.au. The final word, if you pop that in at the price bar, as I mentioned before, 15% off. We'll have all of that in our show notes. A great company, lovely people doing great things. So have a look, futuretalent.com.au. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. Uh, Ian Chappell, such a wonderful privilege to have you on The Final Word. Let's go back to the very start and where you started developing uh, your cricket and your interest in the game. Uh, talking to Greg, your brother last year, he made mention of the fact that around the kitchen table and the dinner table, you needed fast hands. There was never a, a piece of bread passed to you. It would be thrown to you and, and those, sorts of, uh, those sorts of qualities around the, around the house. So cricket was obviously something that was... Uh, going to be part of your your story? Yeah, it was it was all sports really. Yeah, well, when I say all sports, it was cricket, baseball, and football. And I've always said I you know I had an equal love for cricket and baseball. But very early on, Martin said you know we weren't to play with a tennis ball. It was all, always had to be a hard ball, so it was either cricket or baseball. Um, and. You know, I don't remember so much about the bread rolls being tossed around, but you'd be walking around the house as a young kid and suddenly Martin would fire a cricket ball at you or a baseball at you. So, <laughs> you know, Bob Bob Simpson at some stage rather claimed me as, a, you know, as one of his projects as a slip fielder. If Martin had been alive, he would have got on the first plane to Sydney and, uh, and he would have thumped Bob Simpson, and with good reason, um, because, you know, it's no surprise that the three of us were all good fielders because... You know that was part of Martin's project, and in fact, he he had a grand plan. You know, I don't know what age I was, uh, but you know, well, Trevor's nine years younger, and he was around, so maybe I was fifteen, sixteen. I don't know, something like that. And one day, Martin said, uh, pointed at me, and he said, "You'll bat at three." Pointed to Greg, he said, "You'll bat four, 
pointed at Trevor and he said, you'll open. And he said, in the winter, you'll catch, pointing to me. Uh, Greg, you'll play shortstop. Trevor, you'll pitch. <laughs> and... Uh, I mean, that's pretty well how it worked out, except Trevor Trevor pitched as a young guy, but then he, he moved to shortstop as well. But, you know, I was a catcher. Greg was a shortstop. I batted three. Greg batted four. Trevor, you know, did his share of uh, opening the batting. So Martin, you know, had this grand plan for us. I think it's fairly well known that you played baseball as a family, perhaps not to the extent that you played sort of well beyond your cricketing career. You I mean, you came back to baseball and played into, I mean, even into the century. I was actually selected for Australia at baseball before I was selected for Australia at cricket. Um, I played in Claxon Shield 64, 65, 66, and I was picked in the All-Australian side 64 and 66. The problem was in those days, unless there was a US Navy ship in town or maybe a Japanese ship or something like that, you didn't get to play against anyone. But 66, then I toured South Africa with the Australian side and, and I just got married and I thought, you know... Um, uh, that, that's when I go baseball away. But when I retired from cricket and came straight to Sydney, I, I thought, geez, I, you know, I really love playing baseball and I've missed all those years. So I went back and started playing again and um, it was a bit on and off, but I, I actually played my last game of Masters Baseball at 58, still catching. Um, <laughs> but my knees are paying for it now. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever thought that had, had you been maybe uh, 20 or 30 years later on that, that you may have ended up being a professional baseballer rather than going ahead and playing cricket for Australia? Well, it, I, you know, I've said that I had this equal love for both yeah, games yeah. and um, I don't know what age I was. Probably, I don't know, probably just teenage years, maybe... 11, 12, somewhere around there. But I used to get the baseball on Armed Forces Radio. So I'd listen to the baseball. And obviously I got pretty excited about the baseball that night. And I'm, I did a very dangerous thing. I walked into my parents' bedroom at midnight and um, I sit, said to Martin, uh, Martin, I'm going to, you know, when I'm old enough, I'm going to America to play baseball. And he said, piss off back to bed, son. Uh, you're going to play cricket, you know. And, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. But there was no pathway then so it, I didn't ever have to make the decision So Martin's plan about where you're playing and who's batting where and all of that, was that for any cricket team or was he saying that would be for Australia? Oh no I mean I, I never thought about playing for Australia probably until I'd had maybe in the third or fourth Sheffield Shield season you know, uh, so I, I don't think Australia was ever mentioned, it was just no, that was just where I'd bat um, that was your batting position and um, yeah, I remember Richie Benno wrote uh, oh, I think he, uh, a foreword to uh, the first book that I wrote and he wrote in there I think it was there, he said oh, Ian was forced to bat at number three and I said to him later, Rich I wasn't forced, I, you know, I grew up wanting to be a number three batsman I mean Bob Simpson wanted in 66-7 he tried to make me into a you know, a middle order batsman who bowled leg spin which, you know, I quite like bowling but I like bowling as a part time, as a change bowler, you know the other day uh, Michael Hussey was, when the game was on in Sydney Labuschagne came on and he said, oh, what he's got to do now, he's got to bowl tight and not give any runs away and build up the pressure, you know. I, f I felt like saying, bollocks he does, Huss. You know, cause, I mean, I, because I bowled as a part-timer and your idea is bowl as much variety as you can, try and get a wicket, and then you know you'll be taken off and the, one of the good blokes <laughs> will come on. But, you know, that's how I like to bowl. Uh, Simpson had me bowling, you know, 
lots of overs early in that tour. And the interesting thing was, as soon as I got back to South Australia, Les Favell, who was quite straightforward about most things, he said, uh, Jesus Christ, son, he said, uh, you might have been bowling 30 overs for Australia, he said, but there won't be any of that for South Australia. You'll be bowling five or six overs, get me a wicket, and then you're off, you know. <laughs> and I felt like saying, that's great, Les, that's how I you know, like to, to bowl, and bat at number three. You were pushed down the order as well at that point, when You were sort of shades of Steve Smith. You were, at times you were coming in at seven and bowling leg spin. Oh, well, it was my first... I actually, my first test, I batted three, and then... But it was a one-off test, and then I mm. missed out for a while. And then when I came into the Australian side against England, I think I batted six, and I might have batted seven once in South Africa, I think. But mm. the general idea... I think he, I think Simpson's idea was that I batted at six and, uh, and bowled. But, but we, we had a few at that stage. You had uh, Stacky, Tom Vivers and myself, and we sort of, you know, we were all five, six and seven around that area and and, and bowled quite a bit. Um, I remember Greg, uh, one day at the Adelaide Oval, this was South Australia, and uh, I took him off after, I don't know whether he'd got a wicket or not, but I took him off after four overs and he's come to second and said, Jesus Christ, how do you expect me to get wickets when you only bowl me for four overs? And I said, mate, you better find a way because you're a number four batsman, you're in this team to get hundreds and I'm not going to do anything that's going to detract from you making hundreds, i.e. bowl you for long spells. So, and I said, and by the way, if you do get a wicket in the four overs, you'll be off anyhow. <laughs> which <laughs> which didn't improve his sense of humour much. <laughs> so, so Martin's his towering influence, but also your grandfather, Victor Richardson. He, he would have seen a, a decent portion of your, your test career early on in any case. What sort of influence did he have on you coming through school and your early days of grade cricket and early days of South Australia? Vic said very early on, you've got a coach, I'm not going to coach you. So he, there was no coaching. I think he, uh, when Trevor was born and Gene was in hospital, Greg stayed at Vic's place and Vic cleared, I didn't, I didn't even know he had it, he had a tennis court by the side of his house, but I didn't even know he had a, a sort of a pitch in his backyard and he, but because there was all this jungle over it, he cleared it out and started throwing balls to Greg, but I don't think even with Greg that he did much coaching, but he was, uh, he was very encouraging, um, he didn't like speaking on the phone. You know, if you rang him, if he happened to answer the phone, which he wouldn't do very often, if he happened to answer the phone, he'd say, uh, you wishing speaks with me? And um, uh, But then if, uh, like Gene would be talking, and I, uh, you'd work out that he was talking to Vic, and um, and Gene would hand the phone over and say, oh, Vic wants to say something, and he'd say, well played today, and boom, down the phone would go. He, you know, he didn't like having long conversations on the phone. But he was, it was very encouraging. And, and Gene would often say to me, oh, did you see Vic at the cricket today? And I'd say, no, I didn't see him. Oh, he was, he parked over behind the trees and he stood behind a tree, you know, so... Um, so he was incognito. He didn't, yes, he didn't know he was there. Yeah, I think mainly because he didn't want to put any extra pressure on me. Um, but he was, uh, he told me a few things, uh, things like, if you can't be a good cricketer, at least you can look like one. Well, I, I think that escaped me and... <laughs> Greg, I think Greg got that vibe. He said uh, he told me about uh, batting first as a you know winning the toss, and and that was a pretty obvious thing for a captain who captained during um, uh, uh, uncovered wickets. He he just said uh, nine times out of ten you bat when you win the toss. The tenth time you think about sending the opposition in, and then you bat first anyhow. <laughs> that was another thing. And then he he said um, uh, if you. Uh, 
and I'm, I can't remember whether I was vice-captain at this stage or not. I don't think I'd quite got to that point. But he, he said, if you get the chance to captain Australia, don't captain like a Victorian. Um, and I, for some reason or other, I, I didn't take it as a shot at Bill. Um, and I spoke to a couple of, you know, like McGilvray and Fingleton and older blokes who knew Vic pretty yep. well. And they thought it was... And I don't think it would have been Woodful either because he had a, you know... He, he told me quite a few things about body line and uh, I could tell that he had a great respect for Woodfull. Mm-hmm. So uh, a couple of the older guys, McGilvray probably, Fingleton and maybe Tiger O'Reilly, I think they felt it was perhaps Hassett that he was referring to, but he didn't actually use a name. How did you interpret that, the idea of captaining like a Victorian? What sort of traits were the, were the Victorian captains uh, exhibiting? Well, I mean, the problem... I, I learned a lot about captaincy from Bill, um, right. and I thought he was a good captain. You know, the runs that I got in Shield Cricket against Victoria when Bill was captain, they were the hardest runs to get, you know, because he always put the field where you where you hit the ball. Um, uh, I, I thought he was a far better captain than Simpson, for instance, because Bill was always trying to make things happen, um, whereas I felt that Simpson let the game roll on a bit. But Bill, especially in the latter part of his captaincy reign he he wanted to get into a position where you couldn't lose before he start trying to win which is a crap way to play cricket in my book and mm. you know I uh, I always thought you, you had to try and win from ball number one and then if you got if you got into trouble then you only had one other option that was try and draw it um, so you know all, but all the influences I had you know Vic obviously was a, an aggressive captain and and, and I heard a lot about him from Fingleton and O'Reilly, who toured uh, South Africa with him yep. or under him in 35-6. Um, and then Les was a very aggressive uh, captain. And I, you know, I played all my shield cricket other than when I captained. I played under Les. And then probably the, the other lucky break I got was um, when I started captain the school team uh, at 16 years of age that was the same time as Richie took over the captaincy of Australia you know 58, 59 mm-hmm. and because I you know at school I you know obviously I bowled a lot more at school than I did later on but you know I was a number three batsman but I bowled a lot and, and because Richie was a boy well, he was more a leg spinner who batted uh, but I really liked the way Richie captained the I thought it was enterprising and, you know, I liked the enthusiasm that he brought to the captaincy. So that, you know, that had a big influence on me. Unfortunately, his idea of leaving his shirt open had a big influence on me and I've been been getting bloody skin cancers cut out, burnt out and uh, everything else for the last 30 odd years. Is it interesting to you that that sort of, it still plays out that um, that battle between styles, you have someone like Ricky Ponting was quite a defensive Captain Michael Clark comes in and replaces him as a very aggressive captain who's willing to take risks to lose in order to win. Yeah, I mean, I think of of all the captains, you know, of all the recent captains, I think Mark Taylor was the best. Um, both strategy, tactics, and and leadership, which is because there's two parts to captaincy. There's the captaincy on the field, which is you know, if you've got a half decent cricket knowledge, it's not you know, it's common sense, uh, field placings and bowling changes and so on. But then there's the leadership part, which is after hours, and, and I mean that's that's probably the hardest work of the lot. Well, not, not the hardest work, but it, it, to me, the work that you do there, you reap the rewards on the field. 
And I think that's where Michael Clark. I think Michael Clark was the equal of Mark Taylor, uh, strategy and tactics-wise, but I don't think he was the equal... Well, I, you know, that was his problem, was off the mm. field, I think, whereas Mark was a good leader as well as a good captain. Um, Ricky... Uh, you know, Ricky cops a bit as a captain. The, the the only disappointing thing for me about Ricky's captaincy was, you know, his nickname's Punter, uh, and he didn't take his gambling instincts onto the field with mm. him. I, I wish he had of, you know, because, um, you know, I think... He, the thing about, you know, I've always placed uh, Ricky ahead of Steve Waugh as a captain because whether you agreed with Ricky's ideas or not, he never ran out of ideas. But I saw Steve Waugh on the, on the odd occasion that Steve Waugh was under the hammer, he ran out of ideas pretty quickly. But it's a very subjective thing, you know. I mean, field placings and bowling changes, they're very subjective. And... Yeah, Ponting's record uh, while in the period when he had McGrath and Warren, his record was better than Steve Waugh's. Uh, it was only after he lost McGrath and Warren that uh, mm. it came back to the field a bit. But And, th- and I mean, that's going to happen if you lose two bowlers like that. I've heard you talk before, Ian, about the importance of having uh, the ability as a captain and as a leader to corral and people bring people with you that if someone has the ability to make runs or take wickets and be a match winner, that your job as captain was to find a way to make them fit, not the other way around, not to just pick players who already necessarily fitted into the dressing room. You had had that broader responsibility. Well, it's it's common sense, really, because... You know, the, once you realise that all the W's and all the L's are going to go against your name as a captain, <laughs> then I think you've got a chance of being a good captain once you understand that. Because that should mean that, that you then pick the best possible side. You're not worried about whether you like blokes or you dislike blokes. That should never come into selection. you only got to ask one question. If it's a batsman, can it get me 100 runs? If it's a bowler, can it get me five wickets? If the answer to those questions is yes, the guy's in the team. Now, as a captain, it's my, if, he, you know, if he's a bit of an awkward customer, it's my job to, to make it work. And I'm going to do everything, and I'm going to let the guy know. Um, you know, I'm going to say, mate, I want you in this team, but there's a few issues. Let's meet halfway and we'll sort this thing out. And I'll, I'll do everything I possibly can be, before I'll cut him loose. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I wrote when um, <clears throat> Kevin Peterson was sacked from England, that basically he was sacked because he disagreed with uh, Alistair Cook's captaincy. I said they've got it the wrong way around. They should have sacked everyone who agreed with Cook's captaincy <laughs> and kept the blokes who disagreed with it because he was a bloody awful captain, Alistair. Yeah, I mean, he's probably a lovely bloke and he, he's you know been a fine batsman in his time, but and he wasn't a natural captain. And I, and I think anybody who you've got to be when you're picking a captain, one of the first things you've got to do is pick a guy who's going to be buoyed by the responsibility, not weighed down by it. Mm. And I think the responsibility. I mean. Not just Cook, I've seen others, but I think Cook was weighed down by the responsibility. He wasn't a natural captain. And, I mean, how can you have the opposition, if it wasn't all five tests, it was four of the five, he had Australia five down for less than 150 in Mm. the first innings, and they lost 5-0. You can't do that. I mean, if you've got the opposition five for less than 150 in the first innings, you've got to win three of the five, surely. You know, it's it's important um, with with the personality. See, uh, Michael Clark, uh, Mark Taylor, they were guys who were buoyed by the responsibility and, you know, uh, I mean, Ponting, Ponting was buoyed by the responsibility. He, his record as a, 
as a captain. You know, his batting record. Most of the guys who are buoyed by the responsibility, their their record, what are they, whatever they do, batting or bowling, usually goes up. You see it with um, Smith in that his batting numbers went through the roof when he yeah. became captain. But what you talked about, he didn't seem to relish the responsibility of actually leading the side. And and uh, and then you have a player like David Warner where he's got the Kevin Petersons about him where a lot of people say, well, he's too difficult and he shouldn't be in the team because he can't fit as a personality. What do you make of that whole situation? Well, depends who's making the statements. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who make the statements that don't know shit about cricket um, so I don't take any notice of them and anybody who says Warner's too difficult I, I mean I, I'm not in the dressing room I don't know but the bit I've had to do with David Warner what I would say about David Warner is I think he would have been a better captain than Steve Smith because he's got a very good understanding of the game of cricket it, it's a very aggressive understanding of the game of cricket I've I've spoken with him and he's talked about batting, uh, batting in general and his own batting and he's got a terrific understanding of batting and, and his own batting. Um, he did a bit of commentary with Channel 9 and I had a chance mm. to chat with him off air and a terrific uh, understanding of the game. Now, you know, if, he's a if he is a bit difficult, well, mate, if you've got a guy who can get 100 in the first two hours of a test match, why wouldn't you want him in the team? I mean, you do everything you possibly can. Again, if he makes life so difficult, in the end, you've got to, you've got to cut him loose. But boy, I'd be, you know, I'd be cutting him a lot of slack before I cut him loose. I remember listening to you as a kid, Ian, talk about batting as though it was such a simple craft. So there was this old Cricket Academy coaching tape I used to wear out listening, talking about you go, there's only two decisions to make, forward or back, yeah. um, defend or attack. Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't have seen you bat who are listening to this podcast and who watch you on TV or, or radio due to the fact that your career ended, you know, 35, 40 years ago. Does that surmise your cricket really well, your batting side of your game, and that you kept it extremely simple? I tried to, but I mean, like all cricketers, you'll, especially when you're struggling a bit, you tend to, that's when you do complicate it a bit. And mm. and then you uh, hopefully eventually get, grab a brain and say, listen, mate, just do nothing else but just watch the ball out yeah. of the bowler's hand. And that'll, I mean, that makes all your decisions for you, you know, uh, because that's where you pick up the line obviously and the length of the ball watching it out of the bowler's hand um, and when you hear uh, commentators talk about a batsman you know the better players oh he's, they've got so much time that purely comes from watching the ball out of the bowler's hand I remember I think we were in Sharjah um, or Dubai um, and we were sitting around and some guy said to Gary Sobers uh, oh how did, how did you face 90 mile an hour fast bowling that must have been bloody difficult and Gary said to him oh mate he said mate when you know when you, the guy lets it go from there it's a Yorker and when he lets it go from there it's a bouncer and the bloke looked at me and I said well he's right but it's not quite as, as simple as that <laughs> but you and you're not you know, you're not telling yourself to watch the ball out of the bowler's hand all the time. It's just you do it so so much. But there are times when you think you are and you're obviously you're watching in a bit of an area. So going back to the simple bit, uh, I mean, Richie told me when I was probably about nine, I was playing shield cricket, so about 19 probably, uh, he said, Ian, this is a very simple game. The simpler you keep it, the better off you'll be. And... Yeah, like everything else that Richie's ever told me, it was very wise words. Um, and I, I think I got that approach, you know, the old man, um, Martin, and uh, the coach, Lynn Fuller. It, it wasn't, what they were telling us wasn't complicated. It was, you know, it was basically 
keep it simple. You know, I mean, you can boil batting down even further. Um, it, you know, people talk about technique, they jump up and down about technique, but I also, technique is the ability to stop the good ones and score off the rest of them, mm. you know, and, and as long as you're, as long as you're watching the ball out of the bowler's hand and you've got foremost in your mind scoring runs you'll be okay because that means you're thinking positively and when you're thinking positively that's when the feet move well it's when you get into a negative frame of mind that's when the feet stop moving so well and you get into trouble after the elevation to number three in 68 69 you have a massive summer you made obviously 400s in the in the world 11 games a few years after that but um, i'm curious as to what your your favorite innings was or when you felt like you were batting better than any other time greg nominates lords done s72 for him as when he never felt he better than he better. Um, do you sort of look back now and reflect on one day when it just felt better than any other time? Jack Bannister did a book on the innings of their life, it was called. And Jack was, uh, he played for Warwickshire, mm. quite a decent cricketer, and worked for the BBC, uh, I think probably both radio and television, but he was also a written journalist. Anyhow, he did this book, and Greg and I picked the same game. I picked Lords in 72 as well. Oh, really? For, for me, yeah. But it wasn't because that was the innings that were things came the easiest. It was all the things that happened around it. The Bob Massey game, of course, as well. Yeah, but, see, the first test, uh, I came into the... Uh, I'd gone through a patch. Um, Bob Simpson stupidly told me to give up hooking. Uh, Simo was, as, as a coach, Simo was, <laughs> if you didn't bat like him, you know, you weren't any good, basically. Um, and... He said, Ian, this is on the South African tour in 66-7. He said, Ian, uh, give up hooking, mate. He said, oh, you've got enough shots, you'll score enough runs without hooking. I gave up hooking and, you know, it was the best thing I ever did. I didn't actually give up hooking, but worse still, I got into a will I or won't I frame of mind, which is a bloody worst, the worst possible place to be. And it sort of really caused, started to cause me problems seventy seventy one when Snowy bowled so well to mm. us. And in that in that series I realised I was in a bit of trouble and but I thought, you know, I can't change things mid-series. So at the end of that series, Greg and I spent three months um, where I lived, just across the road was Plimpton High School in Adelaide and they had uh, a couple of cement pitches, uh, practice pitches. And we obviously had a lot of baseballs around home and, and they they bounce a bit more than the, the cricket balls. And so Greg and I for three months we would just run up and all shorter than the full 22 yards and we both threw and you know we were both baseballers so we had good arms and ac- the, the important thing is accurate arms and we just fired bounces at each other for these three months and you know and I sorted things out but having said that I sorted things out I I still had to do it in a game to convince myself that yes it was sorted out it's fine to do it in the Plimpton high nets but you know (laughs) up against Jon Snow in a test match that's a different kettle of fish anyhow we we get the 72 tour we get to Old Trafford Stacky and and, uh, Bruce Francis get dropped three times in in the space of a few balls and then uh, probably uh, Bruce Francis, I think, got out one for 69. I come in, Greggy's bowling, first ball bounce. It's the best hook shot I've ever hit in my life. I, I, I didn't. I meant to hit it down, but I just hit it so well it carried right to the boundary. Bloody um, Mike Smith had his heels on the ropes and you know full stretch above his head, and he caught the bloody thing first ball. So I'm out for a duck hooking, you see. <laughs> and then in in the second innings, the pitch had, had been doing everything. It was seeming all over the place, and about late on the fourth day, it started to settle down. 
And I never used to talk to my batting partner. I didn't see the point. Um, but I, I, I thought, you know, this track has really settled down now. So I went down to Stacky, and I can't remember what the score was, but I, we, and we were chasing about 350. And I said, Stack, if we're here at Stumps, we'll get these. And promptly I got out next over, uh, hooking again. But uh, I went to hook Snowy, and it hit the peak of my cap. And so, you know how you swivel around and you come... And I'm facing the umpire and the bloody peak of my cap's over here, which should have been a bit of a clue. Silly old bloody Tommy Spencer gives me out. So I'm out hooking both innings, naught and seven, and everyone's telling me to give up hooking, including my grandmother, not on Vic's side, on the, on the chapel side. She writes me a bloody blue aerogram saying, oh, darling, everyone's saying you should give up hooking, perhaps. And I, that, I mean, that was enough. I thought, you know, she knows shit about cricket, and so I'm, I'm going to... Hook. So right, I'm. Then I go to practice the day before the test at Lords, and I, Jeff Hammond, because I knew Jeff well because he played for South Australia, mm-hmm. and he was a very accurate bowler. And and I used to get him to bounce me in the nets a bit in Adelaide. I said, Bomber, give me a workout. So I'm batting, and the crowd, you know, the crowd behind the nets are pretty close, and they're, oh yeah, even your bloody own players are bouncing. You know, all this crap's going on. You see. So anyway, we, we bowl them out for whatever, 275 or somewhere around there. So I'm sitting waiting to go in at Lord's number three and Kenny Barrington walks into the Australian dressing room, you see. Kenny Barrington played a lot of test matches for England, one of the hardest batsmen to get out mm. all the time. He sits down next to me and he says, oh, Ian, maybe you should think about not hooking until you're 50, you see. And, uh, yeah, thanks, Kenny. And then he leaves and I thought, right, that's it. You know, now I've got a bloody Englishman <laughs> telling me to give up hooking. I am hooking. So I went out there. So all this has been going on and they did me, England did me one favour. Snowy, and apparently Snowy liked bowling from the nursery end for some reason. I don't know why. I mean, he, he would have been a nightmare coming from the bloody pavilion end but anyway and they bowled uh, John Price from the pavilion end and John Price bounced the shit out of me I got 56 I reckon yeah there was something like 10 fours and a six and they they were all hook shots and I eventually (laughs) did get out hooking but it was it was a very important innings because we'd lost an early wicket and you know I've always been a believer that you've got to have someone up the top of the order who takes on the short stuff because that can put an end to the short stuff in a real big hurry. Now, we were lucky we had Stacky and then myself at the top of the order who took it on. But I just thought that it was having lost the first test, me having got out twice hooking, it was a statement as much for the team as it was for me. um, Mm. And that's why I've always classed that as not one of my best innings, but one of the most important that I played. It does sound like a, you know, st- certain stubbornness is part of your makeup uh, in that and other things. Well, you know, again, I've said with coaching, you, you've got to take personality into account with coaching. That, that's what Simpson didn't do. You know, I mean, it's no good telling Jeff Boycott that he's got to go out and take on the fast bowls and hook everything because that's not his nature. The same as it's no good telling me that I've got to bob and weave and avoid bounces because that's not my nature. You know, my, my nature is, well, stuff you, mate. You think you're going to give me a problem? I'll try and give you a problem, you know. Um, what did the Welsh rugby coach say? Um, boys, get your retaliation in first. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that sort of, you know, that reflects here. It's reflected in uh, what you're talking about, about your captaincy in terms of making, you know, letting players be who they are and sort of develop the best version of them, not a version of what you want them to be. 
Yeah, see, one of the one of the other things that I thought was so good about Mark Taylor's captaincy was that he he realised what his assets were and he used them wisely. You know, he had he had some very aggressive batsmen. You know, Michael Slater, Mark Waugh, Ricky Ponting, those guys, and he let them play aggressively. Uh, Alan was Alan was a bit more of a pessimist, and uh, you know, I think there was always a feeling that oh, you know, crikey, there's a disaster just around the corner. Um, you know, when for instance, and and I. I think the players need to know what you're expecting of them. Um, I mean, obviously, if they're batsmen, you're expecting runs, and if they're bowlers, you're expecting wickets. But as an example, um, you know, the first thing I said to Doug when I took over the captaincy was, mate, you'll never get a kick up the bum from me if you get out playing shots. And the reason I said that was because I didn't want him to, you know, I mean, Doug's one of Doug's great assets was that he would come into bat with us in trouble and the opposition would be thinking, oh, you know, he's going to try and work his way out of this. No, Doug would counter-attack and the number of times he won games for us because he did exactly that. But I didn't want him sort of getting halfway into a shot, oh, you know, I better not... And, and that's when you are going to nick the thing. Now, if, if, he, if he nicks it, that's fine. You know, as I said... As I, said about David Hooks, you know, people say, oh, Hooks, he, you know, that's stupid. I said, mate, you can't have the good without the bad. Mm. You know, you're happy when Hooksy smashes everything out of sight, but when he hits one up in the air, oh, no, you shouldn't do that, David. Well, you know, you, mm. as a captain, you've just got to take a deep breath and suck it up when that happens. But the other thing I did was I put uh, Ross Edwards at five on purpose between Greg and Doug Walters. And, and I went to Roscoe and I said, Roscoe, you know, I'll put you between Greg and Doug. They're two stroke makers. One thing I ask is that they get plenty of strike. I said the one thing that can get them out is if they don't see the strike for a while because they both like to be getting on with it. And and Roscoe was perfect because he was a terrific runner between wickets and he loved to just nudge the ball around. And I said, Roscoe, you get 50. While you're getting 50, we'll get 150 with those two at the other end. And the other reason for telling blokes what you're expecting from them is if they go in there in a pressure situation let's say, you know, that's it's three for shit or four for shit. They go in, they think, oh, you know, if I get out now, we're really in trouble. If they're thinking like that, they probably will get out. It, whereas if they think, well, what's he expects me to just push the ball around and give Dougie strike or give Greg strike, he, he's that's some positive thought that he's got in his mind. This is what I've got to do. You know, I've always said, you give me ten competitors and I'll take my chances with anybody. You know, if you... And... And then the other thing is with captaincy, if you've got 10 other guys, whether they like you or they don't like you, one, if they respect you and they want to play for you, you can make some shit decisions, but if they really, they really want to play for you, sometimes they'll make them work. I remember when Lynn Marks played for New South Wales and then he came and played one season for South Australia. And Lynn, and Lynn played for the same club as me, Glenelg, and we roomed together in the, in, on the state tours. And I said to Marksy one day, I said, what makes Richie Benno great cap, such a great captain? And he said, well, mate, he said, Rich will be standing there in the gully with his arms folded and uh, he said it'll be none for 200 and suddenly Rich will change the bowler and he'll just move a fieldsman here and he'll move another fieldsman there just quietly like that, you see. It looks like he's got everything under control even though it's none for 200. And he said, and, 
and the players, they think, ah, oh, this is the move that's going to change it all. And, and because they're thinking that, <laughs> quite often it does change the damn thing. But to me, the important thing that he told me was how Richie, you know, it didn't matter what was going on. Richie just stood in the gully and if you looked at him, you didn't know whether you were up or you were down. And that always, I've always said as a captain, you've got to even out your emotions because if you go up, they'll come up with you. But equally, if you get down, they'll come down with you as well. So having observed all these captains and, and played under um, Bill Laurie, uh, he loses the captaincy and then not long after you're, you're in the you're in the top job. You're an agitator as captain. You're someone who, who took it to the board and stuck it to the administrators. And in 72, 73, you were the one going after them about pay. You said you know, they'd never get you the way they got Bill in 1970 as well. I guess it's a, a threshold question to start a discussion about your, your period as a leader. Could someone like you exist in an era like this we are today or, or were you really of your time? I was of my time, but, I mean, if I was given the... Ca- and I only said this in the bar last night in Canberra. To, I can't remember who was there now, but Alan Border, I think, was one of them. I said, if if I was offered the captaincy now, I'd say, right, these are my terms. You mm. know, I, I don't want a coach. I don't want 7,500 Nork Sleppers, which is Yiddish for hangers-on. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is what I want. Now, if you want me as cap- captain, that's they're the rules. If you're not prepared to give me that, then give the captaincy to somebody else. And I say that. Um, when, when the Argus Review came up, you know, they asked me to come in and uh, uh, when I sat down they said, uh, anything you want to say before we ask you some questions? And I said, yeah. And I deliberately threw a hand grenade in um, probably because I like annoying administrators anyhow. <laughs> um, but I said, if you've got a system that produces a lot of good competitive young cricketers and a few strong leaders and you let them play and you let them lead, I said the rest will pretty well take care of itself. I think Michael Clark was captain at the time, but I said Michael Clark can't captain Australia properly, which was the hand grenade. And what do you mean? And I said, well, at least when I was captain, I only had one bloke to tell to fuck off, you know, mm. and that was the manager. If he stuck his nose into the cricket side of the business, you'd tell him to, you know, let us know what time the cabs are, what day the official functions are, make sure the boys get their checks, leave the rest to us and we'll be fine. But I said, you know, Michael Clark's got all these people, you can't tell that many people to piss off. And, and so what did they do? They put another layer of bloody management in there, you know, with Pat Howard. So... I I did say, in fact, you know, when I was told uh, Alan Shield uh, rang me, I was having lunch in the Overway Hotel in Hindley Street, um, um, and uh, the, some of the bloke said, uh, there's a phone call for you. I went and answered the phone, and it was Sheffield. He said, congratulations, mate. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you're captain of Australia. And I'll never forget, I said, shit, you're joking. And my first thoughts were... Christ, I've been given a hell of a job here because we hadn't, I think we'd gone about 10 tests without winning one. And then I stopped and I thought about it a bit more and I thought, well, you know, we haven't been winning under Bill, so if we keep not winning under me, no one will, you know, they'll just say, well, it's an impossible job. But if I happen to win a a test fairly quickly, maybe they'll think I'm a genius. Um, but, but at least it'll keep me. In, it'll keep me in the job for a while. So I promptly then lost the first two that I captained. But you know what I did? You know I wrote down 
the three captains I'd played under, Simpson and Laurie for Australia, Les Favell for South Australia. I, I wrote down all the things I liked about their captaincy, all the things I didn't like about it, and I tried to do the things that I liked and I tried to not do the things that I didn't like, and then I tried to put my own stamp on the job. Um, the problems with the board had really... The first I became aware of it was really Bob Cowper in 68 at the, at the team dinner. I don't think Cowper had told us that he was going to retire, but we were having drinks in the bar at the Waldorf before the dinner and Cowper said, right, you buggers, nobody speak before me. And Bob Parrish was the manager and Bob was... Well, he was certainly well up on the board. I don't know if... I don't think he was chairman at that stage, but anyhow, he was well up on the board. And... And Cowps just gave them both barrels at the at the team dinner that night. So that was a sort of a bit of a... But, but at that stage, I was just trying to hang on to my place in the team. It really started to gain momentum in 69-70 in India, South Africa. Mm. India, it really blew up. There were a couple of things. Um, I think it might have been Redder discovered that we... If one of us died on the tour, our wives were going to get... It was either $400 or $1,200. Then Bradman was asked back in Australia why Greg Chappell wasn't on the tour, and he said, oh, he's better off back in Australia making runs in shield cricket and not getting crook in India. And when we when this came to us, we all thought, well, so it doesn't matter if we get crook, you know. So there were things were building up, and then we were in Guwahati, and Guwahati was horrible. And it really blew up. We had a team-only meeting and it all blew up and all these things started coming out. And that's when I said to Bill, Bill said, right, I'm going to write a letter to the board and I'm going to put all these points down. And I went to him after the meeting and I said, Bill, we all think, you know, these things. It's not just you. We all should sign the letter. I said, because if you just sign it on your own, I said, mate, as soon as you fail three times, they'll get rid of you. Anyhow, Bill signed it on his own, sent it off, and guess what happened, you know? Mm. So, and then we had, we had another big blow-up in South Africa when they wanted to play the fifth test. So it, it had been... It was building from there. And you say I was an agitator. I think... I'm not going to suggest for a moment that I didn't enjoy, you know, telling them that, that I thought they were dickheads sometimes when, <laughs> when I felt that they were dickheads. But... <laughs> A, a big reason for me fighting for the players, one, we didn't have a players association, but I always felt that they were giving me 100% on the field. So I thought it, it was my responsibility to give them 100% off the field if if there were problems. And, uh, you know, there were Dennis in particular was getting really agitated, 74-5. Um, I, I wrote one column before the start of the... Ashes series, just saying that I wasn't happy with uh, you know pay and conditions. But Dennis wrote about well, he wrote a few with Tom Pryor. Tom Pryor was his ghostwriter, and Tim Caldwell was the president. And Tim came to me and he said, uh, "You better tell your fast bowler to back off." Uh, with his columns and I said Tim why don't you go and tell him yourself because I happen to agree with him and I don't know whether Dennis heard any more about it but they uh, so you know it was really building but by 74-5 and then at the end of that series and that's when you know I mean this is how stupid I was certainly uh, probably other cricketers as well they made an announcement at the end of the MCG test and said that the gate takings were a quarter of a million dollars and I thought Jesus that's good and then I thought hang on 
Now, we're getting $200 a test. That's 12 mm. times 2. That's $2,400. OK, England have got to get some. Uh, who knows what that might be? But there's a hell of a lot left over. And that's when it really started to dawn on me. You know? And then at the end of that series, they gave us $200 a test bonus. So, in other words, if you played the six tests, you got 2400 instead of 1200 you know. But, I mean, England, 72. That was a five-and-a-half-month tour. Yep. We got 2300 Australian dollars. Now, I was OK because I was getting paid from WDNHO Wills. Stacky was getting paid from Rothmans. Greg, I think, was getting paid. Tabsy would have been getting paid because he was with Rothmans. So there were about four of us, probably, who were OK. We were getting paid. So, we, you know, our wives could live on the money back home and we could live on the money in England. But like Roscoe, Ross Edwards, he wasn't getting paid any pay from work. So he had to live with a couple of kids back home. He had to, you know, send money home. It was, so it was, you know, it had got to that point where, like, I mean, Ian Redpath couldn't go on the 75 tour of England. I, you know, and, and we, Redder was a damn fine player. And, you know, and he was also a revered part of the team. You know, everybody loved Redder. And he, and he played like hell for Australia. Redder would give everything. And so I went to um, Ray Steele and I said, Ray, Red can't leave his uh, antique shop and go to England. Uh, and I'd spoken to Redder about it. I said, mate, uh, have you got anyone who could run the shop for you? He said, yeah, I've got an old bloke who's quite happy to do it. I said, what's it going to cost? I'd tell you exactly what it 40 bucks a week it was going to cost. Mm. And I, so I went to Ray and I said, Ray, you know, it's only 40 bucks a week, mate. Can't the board just give him 40 bucks so he can pay this bloke and he comes on the tour with us? Oh, no, we can't do that. I said, why not? Oh, it'll set a precedent. I said, it's not going to set a precedent, Ray. I said, you'll know, I'll know. I'm not going to tell anyone. You don't tell anyone. There's no precedent. No. I yeah. Or it'll set a really good precedent of looking <laughs> after your players. <laughs> well, it could have, yeah, yeah. This animosity, which was sort of bubbling up in the early 70s under your tutelage, if they had have paid more attention to what you were saying then, um, could the bitterness that helped contribute to the, the split in 1977 been partially avoided? I know it wasn't just about money, but had they been more mindful of what you were saying as Australian captain, could have you found a negotiated peace before you did? I don't think that was ever going to happen because Bradman, it was like Bradman treated it as though it was his own money and he was never going to give us more. I, I found that out on a couple of occasions. But then uh, there was, uh, I, I'd had two, I think maybe three, but I can re definitely re recall two approaches about playing professional, a professional troop. And they were going to do it outside the international calendar, so they weren't going to try and disrupt mm. uh, test cricket or international cricket. And when we had the meetings, I said to them, look, you've got to go to the boards because one was an Australian approach and then and there was another one during the 75 World Cup in London. That was some Indian businessmen. Uh, Bishan Beatty came to me and said, Ian, you know, we've got these couple of guys who want to have a professional troop. Uh, and I said, fine, I'll come along, Bish. I think Lloydie was there. But I said, I'll bring Greg because I'm, I don't think I'm going to last much longer as a captain, you know. Yep, that's fine. And both, with both those approaches, I said, look, you've got to speak to the boards because they got the cricket grounds. And without the cricket grounds, you're stuffed. And they went and, and the boards told them to piss off. Then we played, at, uh, Greg and I played, I think, three 
years in a row, probably 72, 73, 74, a double wicket competition in South Africa. And the first year, it was very successful. We, I think we got 400 rond for, you know, we were there for, I don't know, three, four days, something like that. 400 rond wasn't much, you know. I've forgotten his name for a moment, but anyhow. Um, he was the liaison man between the sponsors, and the sponsors were Datsun. It was the Datsun double wicket competition. So when we, uh, Binks, his name was, um, he, when we went back for the second season, he called us all together and he said, look, guys, um, we... It was so successful last year. The sponsors were really happy. They were they wanted they were happy to pay more money. We asked them to pay more money. They said, "Yeah, we're fine." We went to the South African Cricket Union and told them this. They said, "Oh, before you do that, just give us a, a little bit of time." And they obviously went to England and Australia, Australian boards, and told them they're going to do this. And the answer came back, "No, don't do that because they'll expect more money from us." Whereas if they'd have been smart, you know, these people could have paid us extra money, then there wouldn't have been the pressure on the on the boards mm. to pay so much. So this was the attitude. But the main, you know, I've said a lot of times that Bradman was the main cause of World Series cricket because he, it was just like we were asking him to spend his money and it was just it was just flat out no. And then the one that I, the meeting that I had with him over South Australia, because we, Kenny Cunningham and John Corsby were both going to retire because they couldn't afford to play anymore because they were having to take their holidays without pay and all that. And when I walked out of the meeting with Bradman, um, I said to myself, Ian, did you just walk in there and put your wallet on the table and say, Don, fill this up with money? That's how he made me feel, you know. So um, so to answer your question, I, I doubt that... Uh, because, and I was told this by board members, uh, that they would sit around in the meeting and when it came to a vote, Everyone would wait, and when Bradman put his hand up, the rest... Apparently, the only two who would ever vote against him were Parrish and Steele. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not surprised about Steele. I was surprised about Parrish. But the rest, just wait for Bradman. Whichever way he voted, they voted. So you were happy to take him on and, and take the board on because, you know, as you say, you felt like you were representing uh, players who had less power than you had. Um, yep. That same kind of attitude reflected later after your career when you started getting involved in, uh, in, in activism causes, basically. And that kicked off around 2001, did it, when, um, when John Howard's government instigated the Tampa crisis with a, a bunch of refugees stuck on a ship off the north of Australia? Yeah, also before that, uh, the Republican issue, um, yeah, I, I I think a lot of it stems from my mother. Jean was very... Uh, I always got the feeling with her there was a very strong sense of fair play. Um, and, I, you know, I got that trait from Jean, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, I think I said at the time with the, with the Tampa crisis that uh, you realise, as a former captain of Australia, that you there are times when you do have a slightly louder voice than others. And... You know, I said, I think this is a time when I've got to use this, this slightly louder voice for people who have no voice, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I was... a I was a uh, see the and, and I mean I I know nothing about the legal side and, and it, I accept that it's a very very difficult issue you know to to come up with a fair answer but there's certainly a, a fairer answer than what we've had but the the couple of things that that have always annoyed me I would love to ask the politician John Howard um, how would you 
like, you know, if, if you were forced to leave Australia, how would you like you and your family to be treated? Like this? And if he answers yes, he's a bloody dope or a liar. Um, and, and the other thing I'd like to ask politicians is, you know, they keep going on about, oh, we've got to stop the boats and we've got to stop the refugees. Well, what about one of them, just one of them, saying we've got to stop... The con- all these conflicts or stop at least stop some of them because that's where the refugees are coming from and you know I read a book a few years ago his name was Davies I can't remember his first name he's a Welsh scientist it's called Climate Wars and he, he was talking about how the next wars are going to be fought over water and food mm. which is bloody obvious because you know if you've got if you've got food and water um, and you haven't got it and you're, you're going to head where there is food and water and you're going to try and keep them away. I mean, it's, it, I, I liken it to the original convicts coming to Australia. I mean, those poor buggers, were, most of them were guilty of what? Stealing a loaf of bread. Uh, I think it had to be over sixpence, didn't it? Any, you know, so they were stealing a shilling or a loaf of bread. Why were they doing that? Because they were bloody hungry and their family needed food. So what are you going to do? Are you going to just sit back and let your kids starve? No. You're going to try and do something about it. And if you don't have the wherewithal to, to earn the money, you're going to try and steal it. I mean, it's to me, it's... I, I guess I simplify life too much, but it seems pretty simple to me. It's something you've been involved in for a really long time now as the representative to the UNHCR. You've been a patron of Adjust Australia. I mean, as recently as a couple of years ago, you were writing columns for the paper when the Rohingya crisis was happening in Myanmar. And... I read that piece uh, in preparing for this interview and, and you sort of litigated the case of why fairly amazing a country like Bangladesh can take in such an influx of refugees. Do you look at that incident or that, that sort of horrible situation over there in Burma and the, the refugee flow to, to Bangladesh and then look at Australia by contrast where we've had such a, an inability to uh, bring people here in, in certain, certainly in recent times and, and see that contrast. Does that frustrate you as, as someone who's um, you know, advocated for the fair treatment of refugees for a really long time? I'll tell you when it really hit me. We went to Baxter uh, yep. shooting the, uh, that program for... Um, Australian Story? Australian Story, I yep. think. Yes, it was. The, uh, story. Baxter Detention Centre. Yeah. Right. So, we're, And in driving to Baxter, we went past the Port Augusta Jail. Anyhow, we got in there talking to a few people, you see, and there was this young Bangladesh guy. And because he's a Bangladeshi, he, you know, he wanted to chat a bit of cricket, you see. And sure. after we'd chatted for a while, he said, uh, what do you think of this place, Ian? And I said, well, I said, I've just driven past the Port Augusta Jail. I said, it looks like a jail to me. He said, no, it's worse than a jail. He said, when you're in jail, he said, if you obey the rules, you get benefits from it. He said, here, if you obey the rules and one other person doesn't obey the you all get punished for it. He said, it's worse than jail. And I said, you sound like you're talking from experience. And he said, and I said, have you been in jail? He said, yeah, I was in a Malaysian jail. And this is worse than a Malaysian mm. jail. And that's, on that day, I wasn't very proud of the country that I was born mm. in. You know? and, and I've always said that the wor- I think the worst thing that could possibly happen to anybody is you're forced to leave the country you're born in. I think one of the frustrating things with the way these issues are litigated in politics in Australia is that there's this strong push to split it. You're either left-wing or you're right-wing. This is a thing that left-wing people believe. This is a thing that right-wing people believe. When it's nothing near so simple, you know, they're, they're, in a way they're much more simple issues. From my perspective, it's about do you want to treat people well? Do you want to be a good person yeah. to other people? And it's as simple as that. And it yeah. doesn't... There shouldn't be a political persuasion on it. Yeah, I mean, I... I 
you know, I think it's something where both sides should just get together and sort something out. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't know what period, but certainly the last decade, it, it's politics seems to be purely about staying in power. Um, and if you can come up with an issue that'll, you know, wedge the opposition and, and help you stay in power, that's the way it's used. To me, this is not a uh, this is not a political um, situation. This is a humanitarian situation where you've got to try and do, you know, what's best for for you know people who are obviously <clears throat> severely inconvenienced. Um, so. But, uh, you know, do I think it's going to happen? Well, I'm not going to hang by the neck waiting for it to happen, no. <laughs> the two issues that people could identify as being politically weaponised in the way you're talking about it, refugee policy or asylum seekers and, and climate change, and, and you've also um, stapled your colours to the mast on that a couple of years ago uh, in relation to the Adani mine in, in Queensland. So you're not swinging at every pitch, so to speak, to go back to the baseball parlance, but you have decided over the years to pick certain issues where you feel strongly about. If you can sort of elaborate on why you thought you should use your megaphone to, to speak more about climate change. I've always felt that if you just shoot your mouth off at every issue, then people eventually just say, oh, he's just one of those blokes who just likes to shoot his mouth off and he likes the publicity and all yep. that sort of business. So, I, and also, I've got to feel like it's something where I want to thump the table, you know, where it makes me angry enough to want to thump the table. If I'm just a bit pissed off about it, you know, I'll, I'll voice my opinion in the bar or, you know, to talking with my mates but I'm not going to sort of thump the table about it but you know I, I'm I'm married to a scientist and Barbara Ann has been going on about climate change for 20 years I reckon mm. and so you know because of her obviously she's you know she explains things to me so I understand them a little bit better and because of her I watch programs that inform me better and I also I've read things and to me it's you know I mean forget this bullshit about you know the jury's out on the science I mean the jury hasn't been out on the science for someone as someone said to me the other day when I was Julian King actually we were discussing it he said when 97% of the scientists uh, say, you know, this is the situation, there's a fair chance that that is the situation. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's an issue that, um, uh, the, you know, where I feel like thumping the table um, and that's when I sort of do make some public statements. And just quickly and following up, how did it feel having, uh, having you being, you and others who signed that letter being called an elitist wanker by the government? I, I don't imagine that's a sort of tag that anyone's, that anyone's given to you before. Well, I, I don't have a very high opinion of a lot of the politicians, so um, if they disagreed with me, I, I perhaps thought then I was on the right, might be on the right track. <laughs> you, you talked about wanting to have a plurality of voices around you when you're a captain, and it seemed like in, in those in an issue like the refugee issue, having a voice like yours was important because it wasn't necessarily the kind of voice people were expecting to pop up on TV ads, you know, where where they might be able to dismiss other people as as being sort of too far to the left of politics or whatever it was you were someone who you weren't politically aligned you were you're an australian test captain you you had have a certain gravitas in the center of of things rather than belonging on a political fringe 
Yeah, I, I, I think the well, what was the, the program that I did with the Australian Story? I think they called it "Not the Usual Suspects" or something. And I, I think they were, or Just Australia was, uh, pretty keen to get me involved because I wasn't exactly what you said a, a you know, someone who'd uh, had a lot to say on different issues, or I wasn't basically aligned politically. And, and I remember when I, I was. I was I was a special one of my special representative for Australia for UNHCR first, and then Mike Howard actually rang me and asked me about joining a Just Australia, and I said, uh, Mike, you know, I'm I'm interested, but I want to just check with uh, Australia for UNHCR first because I'm working for them and I don't want to do something that cuts across what they're doing. So I rang Naomi uh, Naomi Steer and I told her what I was thinking about and she said that's fine Ian uh, we'll come and visit you in jail (laughs) 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 which sort of Jesus is it going to get like that is it but um, but it does the other thing you find about standing up is you start to get requests for a lot of things to to speak out on them and uh, and it can be difficult to say no not not so much because I don't think I should say no but you sort of you you can almost hear him saying well mate you you know you've been involved with this issue and that issue why won't you get involved with our issue sure. so and you know, suddenly you're expected to comment on every damn thing, and and as I say, I think you wear out your welcome if you. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit like what I felt as a captain about speaking. You know, I, I speeches, in my opinion, don't make any difference at all. I mean, I I just cringe every time I see these bloody huddles, and you know, I mean, how many speeches a day are they hearing? My theory was that if I didn't say much. And then suddenly I said, oh, boys, just before we go, have you thought about this or thought about... My feeling was they'd be saying to themselves, Jesus, he doesn't normally make a speech. This must be important. And, you know, so I sort of worked on the same theory that if, you, if you're shooting your mouth off about everything, people, it'll just go in one ear and out the other. But if you suddenly speak up about something when you're not, when you haven't done a lot of it, people you hope people will say, oh, shit, hang on, he, he must be quite serious about this. You, you turned 75 last year, September last year, and it feels as though your activism isn't winding back. If anything, you're, you're, you're more active in that space than you ever have been before. Is that, is that how you feel you want to continue leading your life? You want to be out there litigating the case for the causes that you believe in? And Oh, I think that's going to stop uh, sooner or later, probably probably sooner rather than later because I think you know you do sort of wear out in life a bit you know I mean I I wore out as a captain four years of that and I'd you know I remember when we were walking to the press conference at the Oval in 75 I was walking down there with Fred Bennett and I told him I said mate I'm going to resign from the captaincy oh mate mate you're tired you're tired you know that's I said yeah I know I'm tired Fred, but I'm, I'm also, I'm buggered, you know, mentally mm. I was shot. And so, you know, life can wear you out as well and I think it probably there'll come a time where I'll say, look, I'd just like to, you know, quietly live out what's left. Um, you know, I, I think there'll come a time when I stop banging the table, yeah. The last couple of years where there's been a lot of talk about Australian behaviour on the field, ugly Australians, all the sledging, and a lot of people have pinned that on you as sort of mm. the, the, the starting point of that. How does that sit with you? It annoys the hell out of me, yeah. Um, and, 
Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things I say to people. Go and read Clive Lloyd's book because I played a lot, hell of a lot probably against Clive Lloyd more than any other captain. And I said, have a look what he said. He said, I played a lot of cricket against the Chapel brothers. They played hard but fair. And I said, Martin would be happy because that's what he told us. Mm. Play hard but play fair. You know, when this, the cultural review was going on uh, recently, you know, I, I answered a question by saying I was never in any doubt that if Martin thought that I'd cheated on the cricket field, if he was in the crowd, even if it was a test match, he'd have come on the field and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck <laughs> and hauled me off and said, you know, when you can behave yourself properly, you go back on. Mm. And, you know, other people who say, oh, you know, there was a lot of sledging in your time, I say, mate, go and look up the Macquarie Dictionary and look up the, you know, the meaning of sledging. And it says, you know, it's a long time since I've read it, but it, it goes on something about uh, abusive batsmen trying to unsettle them or, you know, get their mind off what they should be on. Yep. And I said, mate, when you've got Lily, Thompson, Walker, Gilmore and Mallet in your attack, you don't have to say anything to unsettle batsmen. I, there were two or three things that really annoyed me on the cricket field. One of them was a boycott did it to us once. Mike Brealey was the captain of England, 79-80. It was South Australia versus MCC. And he played forward. Uh, there was a noise. We appealed for court behind. And before the umpire had given the decision, boycott was padding his pad. Now, in my opinion, that's cheating because you're trying to influence the umpire's decision if you do it before he's given the decision. And I told Boycott, as I told a lot of other blokes when that happened, mate, you get on with your batting, leave the appealing to us, let the umpire make the decision and we'll all be a lot happier. Now, because I swear a lot, there would have been a swear word or two in there. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, and I said that to a few people. Now... I think there are some who thought that I was trying to unsettle a batsman. That, that was nothing to do with unsettle a batsman. You know, the incident with Glenn Turner, for instance, um, Brian Hastings hit the ball, Turner was down the non-striker's end, and they had this stupid, only in New Zealand could they do it, they had, there was a wire fence at uh, Christchurch, it would have been um, Lancaster Park in mm. those days, and, and the grass ran there, and then there was this uh, cement gutter as I say, only in New Zealand could they do it. If the ball ran off the grass into the gutter, hit the fence, four, right? That's no problem. Ball goes over the wire fence, six, no problem there. If the ball lands on the fall in the gutter, it's a six. I mean, only cricket administrators and probably only New Zealand could possibly think of that. I mean, it's ludicrous. It just makes life so hard for the bloody umpire, poor old umpire. So anyhow, Hastings hit one and the crowd were quite boisterous and there was a big crowd and it went out and to me it looked like it bounced, hit the wire fence and came back, so that's four. Bob Monteith signaled six because the crowd were all out there and they were, yeah, six, six, six. And I think Bob was a bit of a nervy character and he signalled six. So I went down and I said, Bob, where did that bloody ball bounce? Because, I mean, if he said it bounced in the gutter, well, I'd have just gone back to first limb and so. And before he answered, Glenn Turner started saying something to me and I said shut up you I'm not talking to you I'm talking to him Bob where did that bloody ball bounce and again before he answers me Turner butts in again I says listen mate I fucking told you to shut up now fucking shut up and then Bob eventually said look I think I've made a mistake here and it's only four so you know I went back um, then uh, about, I don't know, not long after that, Turner got down on strike 
to Ashley Mallett and so Rodney was standing up and I'd, I must have been down talking to Ashley Mallett and as I'm running back Glenn's bloody whinging and moaning to Rodney and I said hey listen you fucking shut up stop annoying my players get on with your batting and Rodney said to me afterwards, he, he said, mate, you just beat me because I was about to tell him the same thing. Mm. Now, when we came off the field that night, Doug had a go at me because he said that Glenn was trying to support what I was saying, that it wasn't a six. I said, Doug, I didn't give a fuck what Glenn thought. I was talking to the umpire. I didn't want to be interrupted by him, you know. So now, you know, that was taken as trying to unsettle Glenn. That wasn't trying to unsettle him. It was just trying to sort out a situation uh, on the field, you know. The, the way things boil over. Um, yeah, Mike Brearley spoke about this pretty recently, actually, and then sort of backs up what you were saying, that he said when, when he was playing against your side... Things boiled over from time to time, but it was never, a, you know, a, a deliberate campaign. And that, and he said most of it was generally pretty good natured, um, in one way or another. See, th- this is what I object to, and I, I get really cranky when administrators, umpires, players, referees, the whole shooting match also it's part of the game. It's not bloody part of the game. You know, I, I, the first thing I'd say to James Sutherland, came, oh, it's part of the game. I felt like going to James saying, James, come on, get the law book out and show me. Where's it say that it's part of the game? It's not part of the game, it's bullshit. And what I say is exactly what Mike Brearley said, that it annoys me, like uh, the Australians said about Rabada before the South African tour. Oh, we know he's on so many points, he's near suspension, we might try and bait him. You know, now that's that's bollocks. Um, so what I've always said is none of it was premeditated. You know, the, sitting around in a team meeting and saying, oh, Jeff Lemon, he, we can unsettle him if we talk about something or other. Yeah, that's, that's bloody bollocks. And the second thing I've always said is, you know, there were things said on the field when we played, but it was it was heat of the moment stuff. And the other good advantage we had back then was that that most with most teams you'd sit around and have a beer afterwards. And the number of times you'd sort of sit there, you know, shield cricket or even, you know, international cricket, and the bloke sitting across from you, you've, you know, you've been having a to and fro earlier in the day, you got a beer in your hand, you look at each other and you, th- and you say, fucking hell, how stupid was that today? <laughs> and you laugh about it. And so you've brought it back down to not nothing, but you've brought it way down. So whereas if you don't do that, the thing's still at boiling point the next day. And you're starting from boiling point, and you know that's when things can get really inflamed. So, but I, I do get very, very annoyed when uh, when we get the blame for it. And by contrast to that harder side, there's the I mean Ashley Mallett's written about your your softer side and, and your mother telling him that that, he, that you had this sort of uh, you're always by nature a compassionate, softer person internally. To that end, I'm, I'm curious about your your uh, your interpretation of the way that your brother Greg gets smashed pretty hard in the media these days and I mean uh, as we record this today last night there's a documentary about the underarm incident for instance which of course featured your other brother Trevor how does it affect you when when your your two brothers have been um, in the firing line uh, Greg more recently but also then in 1981 and also even the fact that Trevor was on the front page of the Daily Telegraph last year um, during the sandpaper crisis and trying to link the two things together and so on like what, what sort of emotion does that, does that bring up for you? Firstly, you know, I've always got the shits when Trevor gets the blame for it because, you know, he didn't have any choice. You know, one, it's his captain telling him to do it and two, it's an older brother. So how the hell is he going to say, no, mate, I'm not doing it, you know? So it really annoys me that Trevor gets the blame for it. Uh, that, was, that was total bollocks, the, you know, what was written last year about 
you know, it, it, it affected Trevor for, yeah. you know, whatever it said. It had been affecting him for a long time. I mean, I see Trevor pretty regularly. He plays golf at, uh, at Long Reef, which is just down the road. Right. Friday afternoons, uh, he comes down here or I go and meet him somewhere. We have dinner We're pretty on a pretty regular basis. So I'm seeing Trevor, you know, I've been seeing him over all these years. He's not affected by the bloody thing. I mean, he's, he's probably like a lot of other people. He's sick to death of hearing about the damn of course, thing. yeah. Purely on the basis that, for Christ's sake, it happened all those years ago. Can't we just forget about it? You know, and, um, but he's never, you know, he, he copped it on the chin, and um, and that's the way he is. You know, I disagreed with Greg ordering it in in the uh, in the first place, and I wrote about that. We sorted that out. I, you know, I don't have to defend Greg. Uh, I two two things. Uh, Two little stories I'll tell you. Um, Greg, he was an opponent most, mostly to me uh, mm. for many years because that's what we were in the backyard and we didn't play any cricket together. First cricket we played together, we, we played baseball together before we played cricket together. And he came into the, into the Glenelg side when he left school and we were playing in a semi-final. I, I, I think it was the first time I'd played with him in a club game I think I must have been off playing test match or a shield match I think he'd played a couple but I was away this is the first time I'm playing with him or first time I recall playing with him Neil Hawke was in the opposition Eric Freeman was in the opposition so two test match bowlers and we were in a bit of trouble um Anyhow, Hawkey got Greg out LBW, and I, I felt really angry. I, I felt like going to Hawkey and saying, "Mate, pick on someone your own bloody size—you know, not size, but capability." And that was in the semi-final. We finished up getting the runs and getting into the grand final. I got out for three in the grand final, and Greg got fifty odd. And I thought, I don't have to—I don't have to protect this bloke any longer. <laughs> Um, so from then on, and, and I knew that I didn't have to look after Greg too much. I mean, from a, out in the backyard, I remember there was one incident where he nicked one and, you know, we had all these, there was a garage and a lean-to, they were the slips, and then you had other, uh, Martin had wire netting covering some of the fruit trees. If you hit them on the full, you're out. Anyhow, Greg's nicked this thing and it's hit the, something I said you're out mate go on go and fill in the scorebook and come back as the next didn't hit it I said mate you hit it now piss off and fill the scorebook in didn't hit it so eventually I've got his right arm up behind his back trying to get him to admit that he's hit this bloody thing he's a kid poor kid's only about probably nine or ten maybe and eventually it got to the point where I thought shit Ian here keep going you'll break his bloody arm here and so I backed off and uh, and then Jean Jean would have come out she was the first third umpire Jean she'd come out and what's going on what's all this noise about so this little bastard he's nicked one and he won't go out and the third umpire always came up with the same decision <laughs> oh he's younger darling you know you just give him another go and Greg always used to say that was the worst decision possible because then I'd bounce the crap out of him because he wouldn't go out. But So I knew at that young age that he was a very, very determined bloke. And, you know, Greg will, Greg will be hurt by it, I know that, but uh, he, you know, he'll just handle it in his own way. And, uh, 
the blokes that he's really pissed off about, I wouldn't like to be them because he'll find a way to let them know that he's pissed off with them. Have you communicated since he stepped down as a, a selector? Just again, we're recording uh, the, a few days after that's been made clear. Do you, like, do you talk on on that kind of regular basis? You pick up the phone and ring him on a, on oh, a day he, like that. We, we chat quite a bit, but I had dinner with him. Uh, what was that Saturday night in Canberra? Oh, so right. he, the day the story broke. He, yeah, but I, he told me a few days before that okay. it, that it was going to happen. But you know, he said, "Keep it to yourself." You know, he said, "I think I've just." I've got no more fights left in me, you know. Um, and I know, you know, I've, I said, well, mate, that's how I felt in 75 when I resigned the captaincy. I didn't have any more fights left in me, yeah. And what are these dinners like when you two catch up? Do you talk about, you know, making twin tons in the same test match or do you talk about anything of your days as cricket or is it all either forward-looking or, or other parts of your lives? We talk about things other than cricket, um, but we do talk a lot of cricket. No, we don't, uh, you know, we don't talk about... Uh, what we did or anything like that. It's mostly about the, uh, you know, the game that's going on at the time or the modern game. Um, you know, I think sometimes when he's a selector, he, not that he's saying this to me, but I think he's picking my brains a little bit about what I think about yep. certain players. We we don't uh, we don't have many arguments, but when we do, it's usually a pretty good one. <laughs> Um, you've got this sort of reputation as being quite a, a hard-edged character, as you just described the, the backyard brawls and, and the rest of it. But there's another side with a couple of the cases we were looking at in, in researching this with, say, Terry Jenner and Chuck Fleetwood-Smith who ran into trouble in their personal lives, Gary Gilmore when he got very sick. We, we've, you've shown a much uh, more gentle side in trying to help people out who are in strife, who, who were close to you. It's going to sound pretty funny when I say this to, to a lot of people. It'll sound funny. I, I really don't like confrontation. You know, I'm, uh, I, I try and avoid it where I can. But, you know, you're in a situation where you're captain of Australia, so it's, it's going to happen and I you know strangely enough I when there is confrontation I can you know I quite enjoy getting into it but most of the time I try and avoid it um another thing I've always said is that once you're their captain you're their captain for all time the thing you know obviously with with Terry um you know I wrote a piece saying that I that he didn't he had a problem he had a sickness basically he needed help not jail and I did write that he would uh, he would be a very good coach uh, which he turned out to be but I remember I spoke to David Hill uh, when he came out of jail and I said is it all right if I do an interview with Terry Jenner and he said yeah go if you like mate that'd be terrific and he was I knew he was around near the member stand at the Adelaide Oval as it used to be configured and uh, we had to do the interview back at the media end of the ground you see so I went and got TJ I said TJ we're walking we're walking back you're walking back with me and I said we're not going around the back where you know because remember you used to be able to go around around the back of the Adelaide Oval I said we're walking around the front and I said you hold your bloody head up high you've got no reason to hang your head and um, and he said, uh, you know, he said uh, sometime later, I think probably when he wrote his book, that it, that it meant a lot to him, the fact that I actually walked with him and made him walk around the front. Yeah. The, the the Chuck Fleetwood Smith thing, uh, that was more, I, I suppose because he'd played in my grandfather's time mm. and he'd played with my grandfather. 
and I read Greg Groudon's book, and uh, you know, just the, the thought of an Australian cricketer getting to the point where he's drinking methylated spirits, and on a good night he's mixing a bit of orange juice with it. I, I thought, Jesus, you know, how how do you get to that point? And I. I, I must have been talking to Bill Jacobs about it, I think, and um, uh, and and I must have mentioned it to Bob Massey, and Bob said he was interested. and And when I spoke to Fagan, Bill Jacobs about it, he said he knew where he'd slept on the banks of the Yarra, and I said, "Can you show me?" And mate, we went down there. So it was a Boxing Day Test match, so it's late December. We went down there. It was bloody freezing in late December. And he showed showed us Bob and I the spot where he slept, and then we went up to the Young and Jackson's and had a couple of beers there because I I really felt felt like I needed a beer after seeing it. It was just it was more the fact that thinking that an Australian cricketer could get so far down that he'd be drinking methylated spirits, but you know I mean Gus TJ they. You know, they did a lot for me as a captain, as bowling. I mean, Gus, six for 14 in the World Cup semi-final. TJ got 200-odd wickets for South Australia, a lot of them under my captaincy. They, you know, they were guys who put in under my captaincy. And as I said, once you're their captain, you're their captain for all time. So you talk about your interviewing, Terry Jen. I mean, this has been a... a, a a strong theme of your post-playing life. There's been the commentary, the, the Channel 9 personality, which obviously obviously everyone has seen you on the television, but the writing side of it, um, you've always read a lot and you've always written a lot. That isn't normal as a cricketer. Most cricketers that finish up playing and have a column have it ghostwritten and, and uh, sort of notoriously um, the, you know, a, lot of the, a lot of people who are involved in cricket don't take a lot of interest in literature and so forth, but, but you've, you've defied the, the norm on both fronts. Is that um, something you take a lot of pride in? Is that, is that why you're still sitting with us in the press box writing your columns? I mean, you're the one person that comes and sits with us to this day. Yeah, um, well, the reason I sit in the press box is a bit quieter than, than the commentary box. That's, <laughs> that's one reason. But, you know, I mean, I know... A, so many of the journos and I always feel comfortable mixing with them and so on so I I just I enjoy writing I guess it was English was the one subject that I was any good at stroke interested in at school um Barbara Ann gave me some pretty good advice Uh, at one stage she said make sure you read good writers because at least that way you'll understand what good writing is which was good advice it was quite a a poignant thing, I guess, for for those of us who you know watched nine commentary for a long period of time, and then it's wrapped up. But you know, uh, Richie's gone, Tony's gone, uh, Bill Bill had all but retired at the time. Did it? Was it almost um, a relief that it finished up, or were you were you sad to walk away from it? Um, I you know I, I looked at it this way that I had forty years of it, so I I thought that I was pretty lucky. Um, I thought a bit sorry for guys like Tom Malone and Brent Williams uh, and a few others who had really just started, uh, and I I thought the last couple of years things things were uh, were I, I was really enjoying it, um, and, and I thought they were doing some good things. So. I really felt sad for them that it that it came to an end because uh, you know they they hadn't had the opportunity to spend forty years at it like like I had. Um, uh, so that was. Other than that, I I guess I've just always felt that uh, it's going to come to an end sooner or later. And the fact that it lasted forty years, I think I was pretty damn lucky.
Ian, we could sit here talking to you, I suspect, for, for several hours, but um, due to uh, factors outside of our control, that, that must be the time where we call it quits. But for your words, your, your commentary, your, your leadership and, and the massive contribution you've left on the game and for joining us today, uh, thanks for being part of the final word. Pleasure, guys. Thank you. This is the final word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, that was a lot of fun going back through the Ian Chapel interview. As I mentioned off the top, we, we we covered a lot of bases. I was particularly interested in the difference between on-air family-friendly Chapelli and um, as soon as you put a different kind of microphone in front of him, Chapelli, uh, we we got the we got the unvarnished, the parental lyrics version then. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it added a, a bit of seasoning to every story, I felt. No, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Glad we did it. Glad we're able to bring it to you again on this encore edition of The Final Word. As I mentioned before, uh, we'll be back in your feeds with Megan Shoot early next week. Uh, and if you are one of our patrons, of course, you can jump on and watch the Damien Fleming interview. That's now posted on there. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a big week in Final Word action uh, when we've got to the end of it and, and we're... And we're very glad we did. So, so thanks for being uh, with us throughout. Uh, and if you do want to become a patron, Jeff, it's very straightforward. Patron.com forward slash the final word. Yes, as long as you consider the spelling of patron to be straightforward, which it's not because it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N-Y. <laughs> we'll never know. And thanks to Jay Mueller and Bad Producer Productions and to Dave Collins for looking after us. As always, we're ever so grateful. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks. This has been The Final Word. We'll talk soon. So you know what I meant. Yeah. I had to go about it.